Hello, everyone. I'm Brian Zimmerman with Becker's House Review. Thank you for tuning into the Becker's Healthcare podcast series. I'm joined by Dr. Robert Bessler, CEO and founder of Sound Physicians. Rob, we recently partnered with you on a webinar about value-based care, and I thought we could use our time together to really dig, uh, dig in deep on this topic. But before we begin, can you just share a bit about your background with our audience? Sure. Thanks, Brian, and great to be with all of you today. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, my background uh, for the last 20 uh, years, I've, I've led a, a great organization called Sound Physicians, who's focused on uh, delivering great care throughout the acute episode of care from the time of arrival in the emergency department through about 90 days after discharge. Uh, and um, my background is I'm board certified emergency medicine and uh, trained in Cleveland, moved south to Seattle 20 years ago uh, to start Sound. Excellent. I do appreciate that context, Rob, and we're thrilled to have you today. Um, and, and let's go ahead and dive right in here. So, of course, there, there are several changes on the horizon related to bundle payments and value-based care, and, and we're going to really uh, you know, zero in on that in a moment. Uh, but to lay some sort of groundwork here, can, can you sort of share, uh, Rob, what you're currently experiencing in the value-based care space right now? Sure. So we, we cut our teeth in value-based care back in uh, 2014. 14, when we entered the first bundle payment program uh, with, with CMMI, part of the Medicare. And, you know, we learned a lot along the way. And um, the most important thing we learned early on in the bundle payment program was really to not lead from a place of how are we going to cut costs, right? It was, let's redesign care. Let's make outcomes the focus. Let's make patients the focus. And it turns out that when you do that, you get paid to make care better. And that actually resonates very well in leading my peers on the front line. And that that's worked really well for us. So from 2014 to 2018, we were in the first bundle payment program. We basically improved our savings rate by about 100 basis points a year and better than trend. And that, that worked really well for us. There were lots of ups and downs on the CMMI side about how they'd set targets, what the pricing models were. And, and so we built a really collaborative relationship with CMMI since we were about 20% of the nation's program. And then in the second program with BCIA, um, they, they made a bunch of other changes. They went from a 2% guaranteed savings to the government to three. So that's a big hurdle to increase how much you have to return by 50%. Lots of health systems and groups dropped out at that point, but we continued to beat trend, which was great, uh, and continued to innovate to deliver more value. What's interesting is the exact same principles of you know, what we call the home, home, home program. How do, if they're in the hospital, how do we get them, get the patient home? If they're in the nursing home, how do we get them home sooner, i.e. lower SNP length stay, prevent readmissions? And if they're home in, in the home, how do we prevent them from bouncing back to the hospital? So keep it pretty simple when leading at scale and built interventions around each of those three levers. And it turns out those are the same three things that are needed for every MA plan in the country, every ACO, you know, most Medicare Advantage plans don't have a really strong uh, post-acute 
execution strategy or uh, execution arm to their strategy. And certainly most hospital-based ACOs, a, a win for them is when they build out a, a high quality network of nursing homes, but they don't really have an execution arm of how to lower SNP length of stay, how to prevent readmissions in the middle of the night. And so we, we built those out. And now, you know, all the work we did for bundle payment translates very well to both uh, MA plans, risk-bearing medical groups, and ACOs. Absolutely, Rob. And I think sometimes when we talk about value-based care, at least the, the, the conversation can seem pretty complex, but I love how you sort of um, distilled it down to something, which is like, you know, if you focus on the patient, you know, costs will go down. Um, you'll, you'll get paid to, to deliver uh, great care. Everyone wins, right? Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I'd like to bring it more to reality with examples. So when our clinician, uh, when our doctor nurse practitioner sits at the bedside with a patient uh, right before discharge, instead of this being some sort of phone triage with a prior pre-authorization of an insurance company, you have a doctor or a nurse practitioner sitting with the patient and family and saying, you know, in the past, we chose nursing homes by who had a bed, who had a nice lobby, and frankly, case managers, you know, who they liked or who brought donuts. You know, now we put data in front of the patient and family and say, you know, if you go to one of these three nursing homes, you're going to have a better outcome. Your risk of fall is 3x less, uh, et cetera. And so, um, you know, patients listen to their doctors uh, and, and certainly... Um, that that works well for us and it builds trust and rapport and we get better outcomes. And frankly, when we also say, and if you go to one of these nursing homes, my partner will be available 24 seven through sounds telemedicine nursing home business service, you know, where we can see you in real time with a click of a button from the nurse in the nursing home. And that lowers readmissions by 23%. Um, that is very compelling. And that's better care for patients. It's better outcomes. Uh, and, and that's what we're after. I appreciate you grounding us in, in those real world examples. You've obviously been operating in the space for a while and, and really had some notable success as you laid out in, in your first answer there. I'm curious, uh, you know, how is the growth in lives covered under Medicare Advantage sort of changing your approach or, or has it changed your approach to value-based care? Yeah, so in our model, um, you know, we've latched on to the growth in MA, you know, it's who's a payer, who's a provider is, is becoming more blurred, of course. Um, some health systems hire us because they're managing MA directly. Um, Risk-bearing medical groups hire us because we're, they're managing a bunch of uh, admits. Um, hospitals want, you know, the volume so that helps us. You know, the biggest difference between MA and bundle payment is just the front door, right? And so making sure the incentives are aligned. The MA plan would love to divert as many patients as possible from admission. Bundle payment program doesn't start until the patient gets admitted. And we've built some innovative models. It's, you know, the pretty evolved health systems realize that Medicare Advantage medical admissions don't make much money for the health system. And if the health system is busy, uh, you know, we've built models where there's direct contribution shared between the health system and us for appropriate placement of patients other than the hospital, whether it's hospital at home or just follow up the next morning. 
we never do that without hospital involvement and aligned incentives, but um, that that's a real interesting evolution and kind of the biggest difference between MA and bundle payment. Everything once the patient's admitted is the exact same. It's how do we do the best care for the patient and how do we use resources appropriately? And frankly, patients get better outcomes when they're in their home. So how do we get more of our people home after discharge is key? How do we use less unnecessary LTAC utilization? How do we save rehab beds for patients that really are going to benefit from rehab? And if they go to a nursing home, how do we make sure they go to the ones that are going to actually deliver good outcomes for patients? Thanks for laying all that out. I, I, you know, thinking about sort of innovative models that, that, that you mentioned, um, I, I know you recently published a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine about uh, your approach to the bundled payment care improvement advance program. You know, what do you see as the most critical components of your methodology in, in this effort? Yeah, thanks. We're, we're proud of the work of our teams. And, you know, luckily we got the, to be the John Berkmeyer, chief clinical officer, and I got the ones to write it, but it's clearly the work of tons of people. And there's really five key operating principles that we talk about. The first is aligned incentives um, and really about the provider having accountability. Like um, we learned that we can't have a separate you know, a model, it, it, it has to be a, what we call a model within the model where we create what's called high risk teams is the first thing. So if we have a big hospitalist practice with 20 or 30 physicians, it would be, we tried this, it didn't really work is have it all 20 or 30 physicians be involved in all the patients that we take risk on and running all those workflows. What turns out is we get much, much better results if we focus those patients to a select few number of physicians and nurse practitioners. So we create small teams devoted to managing risk. We create more intensive value-oriented workflows around that. And the results are pretty striking. Whereas on our non-high-risk teams, we were able to lower post-acute utilization by 8.7%. With our high-risk teams, we were able to lower it by 16%. Uh, another example is in our non-high-risk team model, we increased the use of advanced care planning discussions by 16.5%. But in our when we used high-risk teams, we increased the use of advanced care planning by 45% because the docs had more time. They were more focused on it. And you know, readmissions improved by um, 4% more in the on the high-risk teams as well. So all in all, uh, that was the first key thing is create the high-risk teams. The second was, you know, we built a technology platform that really focuses on identifying our risk patients. It's surprising how many hospitals uh, have no idea who their patients are that they're taking risk on. And so our technology identifies them at the front door. And then we have all sorts of prompts. And the probably the most profound prompt is probably the simplest one is based on age and diagnosis. Of, um, when a patient comes in, the doc is prompted uh, you know, to ask what's called the surprise question. And the surprise question is an evidence-based predictor of mortality. And the question is really, um, would you be surprised if this patient wasn't alive in a year? And if you say no, then that should uh, trigger an advanced care planning conversation with the patient and family to make sure that the patient's wishes are met. Uh, turns out patient experience scores go up, less unnecessary utilization happens. And, um, and more patients go home. So that's number two is how do we build, use our workflow and technology? Number three is um, 
within that subgroup is making sure that we use the right analytics to identify patients that are going to have a higher risk of readmission and run a certain set of workflows around those patients. And then the fourth is putting real-time data in front of our docs so that, you know, we, we believe very strongly in, in uh, unedited or, you know, really just looking at it right, having everybody see everybody's data very transparently. And we're all competitive by nature and that, that drives improvements in all the metrics you're trying to focus on. And then the fifth and probably most important one is this uh, very high level of collaboration with the primary care docs and post-acute providers. And there's three real levers. Number one, uh, we talked about it already, but uh, have, having the docs involved in selecting the nursing homes and home health agencies. By, you know, I talk about it all the time as where you send somebody is a prescription, no different than a drug. And if the FDA came out with a black box warning on a drug today, I'd stop prescribing it. But every day in America, we send patients to nursing homes that hurt people. And so making sure we see that where people go as a prescription. The second is in home health, we built a two week protocol, meaning what's interesting is home health pays for 16 visits or Medicare does for 16 visits in the first 30 days, but most home health agencies plug the patient in when it's convenient for their staffing model. We really focus with the patient in the center and demand that most of that, those visits get front loaded in the first two weeks. That really makes a big difference in readmissions. And then the third and most exciting one for us is building out a SNP telemedicine business across the country in thousands of nursing homes where we uh, cover our patients after hours and frankly, just get rid of lazy medicine so that when instead of the medical director getting a call at three in the morning and that medical director has to get up and start rounding again at six and says to the nurse, just send them to the ER our hospitalist that's only working a shift in the middle of the night, go sees the patient virtually, manages the care, keeps them in place, and drives incredible value to the healthcare system through that. And the same thing goes in our home health. It's much less volume, uh, but there is occasionally a nurse that needs a doc in real time in the home. So that's really the five level, the five areas. It's you know the aligned provider accountability, so the high risk teams the consistent technology that gives appropriate prompts, identifying the high-risk patients, putting meaningful data in the hands of the docs, and then the collaboration after the patient leaves to get better outcomes. Excellent. I mean, I, I think those laying those five points out is going to be really useful to, to listeners. And, and specifically toward, towards the end there, when, when you were talking about sort of getting the physicians involved in selecting nursing homes, like in my head, I was just like, yeah, like you do a prescription. And then you you follow it up and, and put it that way. It makes a ton of sense. I, I think that's really fascinating work you're doing. Yeah. Success for decades was they had a bed, right? And that that's just yeah. not acceptable anymore. Yeah. And so for my next question, I think you have a very sort of unique perspective on, on value-based care. Uh, you know, since 2014, you, you've learned along the way. You, you know, as a physician, you have a unique perspective at, at, with the size of sound physicians, the size of your organization. Uh, you, you have a unique perspective. So I'm going to challenge you to, to, to pull out your crystal ball for us here and, and shift our focus to the future. What are your thoughts about where things are headed in terms of value-based care? Yeah, we have lots of um, deep, good conversations with Medicare and, and CMMI in particular. And, you know, in the last administration, they announced a move towards mandatory bundles, uh, 23, 2023 and 2024. 
And of course, I have no idea what actually is going to happen more than anybody else that's in this space. But what I do know is, you know, every month, an entire Big Ten football stadium is filling up with new Medicare patients, right? So over, <laughs> you know, 10,000 people a day or whatever the number you want to quote of people are turning 65. People are living longer. Um, Medicare Advantage continues to grow. It's lower cost with higher quality. And, you know, there, so there's going to be increasing demand for how to manage these patients. At the same time, very few, you know, there's still a very small number of patients in Medicare Advantage that are actually managed holistically through a risk-bearing medical group right? There's a lot of MA that's un, what we call undelegated. And so while primary care groups can come up with innovative models when they employ their own hospitalists or whatever, that's, that's a small fraction of the total volume of Medicare Advantage patients. And so we think about episode payment as part of the larger picture. So I think the open questions are how do episodes relate uh, to ACOs. Well, they're 50% of the spend of an ACO, right? So uh, <laughs> we better get, we better work on that as a society. Um, if so, how do episodes relate um, to the risk-bearing medical group? They're, you know, even the best primary care groups uh, out there on improving quality and lowering cost still spend 50% of their money on acute care episodes from the time of admission through 90 days after discharge. So they need a partner or they need to figure it out themselves. I would argue that it's a lot of infrastructure to create for a medical group in one market or two. And so that's kind of how we see it is that, yeah, bundle payment is part of that. Mandatory bundles would be explosive opportunity for improving outcomes. They're a huge risk to hospitals, right? Because the average hospital in the United States, we've done the work and math would immediately have a uh, eight figure risk that they don't have today if bundles became mandatory, meaning north of 10 million of, of their revenue would be at risk. And so we think about our head start for the last eight years to get good at this and make the mistakes others will make <laughs> as an important part of our future. And so that's kind of how we see it. If, if ACOs dominate, they'll still need episode solutions because it's half of the dollar spent. Right. And then thinking about those mandatory bundles, can, can you talk more about the direction CMS will take? What, what, do, what do you think the, the direction, your best prediction anyway, yeah. uh, CMS will take with those, those mandatory bundles? Well, one thing anybody that's been in insurance or risk business knows is you, you need scale, right? So a small rural community hospital, they're going to have to exclude those sort of places for mandatory bundles because, you know, in any one hospital in our 350, we could be upside down 20% in any quarter, right? Because the N isn't high enough in any one hospital. So you need scale. That's the whole definition of insurance, right? And so you need scale when you take risk. So my guess is they will exclude rural hospitals or small hospitals from bundle payment, but I think there's enough institutional will there to say, look, if we really wanna get costs down, 
you know, we need a mandatory, either it's an ACO or an episode for Medicare patients. And it, you know, Medicare fee-for-service is still 60 to 70% of all Medicare spending, right? And so they've got it. If you want to um, keep the trust fund going, you, we got to continue to work on lowering costs. And, and this is a great way to do it. And frankly, get better outcomes for patients. And so, you know, I'm a fan of it. I think um, we're obviously biased because we've been doing it, invested heavily in, uh, in the model. Um, but I don't see a path for CMMI and CMS to get after 50% of healthcare spending without focusing on uh, the episode. And it could turn out they dictate ACOs at the same way. And then the ACO has to drive to, you know, focus on the, the 50% that's the acute episode. Because today, most ACOs have been set up as market share gains and focusing on primary care and and RAF lift and other things. Yeah, that 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 all makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I want to shift maybe the 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 angle from which we're looking at uh, the value based care landscape. Um, can can you talk about how you see advanced primary care models or or those hospital at home models you you mentioned earlier, um, perhaps changing how payers think about value based care? Yeah, so I think hospital home models in particular. You know, they've been a great solution for a long time looking, looking for an economic model that's viable. And they, the reason I say that is because most hospitals would, you know, if they started moving a bunch of patients that otherwise were appropriate admissions by Millman or Interqual criteria and send them to the home, then I think you're, you'd be in, you know, they, they'd lose money is how they think about it. I think going forward, the way we are thinking about it and we think it you know as an ed doc you know i know my peers are very uncomfortable saying wow you're sick dear patient but you know i'm going to send you home and hope for the best right <laughs> um yeah. so so the way i think about it is the er doc says let's you you need to be admitted mrs smith um and i call the hospitalist the hospitalist typically decides between floor telemetry or ICU. Well, I think in the future they go, hmm, floor telemetry, ICU or home environment, and they handle the admission to one of those four places. And then the hospitalist service, like this is how we're set up, then manages the home environment with a logistics business, right? So the home environment is managed through telemedicine, maybe a visiting nurse, maybe visiting IV therapy, you know, all the different logistics that are needed uh, in the home. And then, you know, the payment model follows where the health system, maybe the health system rents beds from a home-based health system provider, and it creates 20 virtual beds in a city or something. And they use those on a daily basis. And, um, either us or the home health agency or home health hospital at home agency is taking the risk on spending minus some contribution dollars to that health system. And we see that as kind of a, a good future. And we know that patients rather be in their home as long as the physicians and, and other care providers are confident the care is gonna be delivered effectively. 
just like anything though, you gotta be careful about overutilization, no different than when laparoscopic cholecystectomy came out, you know, great. It was much less expensive than open, openly taking the gallbladder out, but guess what happened? Seven times more gallbladders were taken out because it, <laughs> it was easier and cheaper. So we're going to have criteria that prevent all of a sudden an explosive growth of people getting care in the home that frankly is more expensive than the other care they would have gotten in the home. <laughs> so that, I think, you know, I think that's, um, part of the solution. I think it's going to be hard to discharge patients from a clinic while you're sick. We're going to admit you to the home as a hospital. It's going to be hard to get all the tests necessary in real time to make sure the patient's safe to be in the home as a true hospitalization. Our bet is that they're still going to end up in the ER. I know there's some urgent care in the home models that claim to be able to do hospital at home. I'm just not sure they're that sick uh, of a patient. Right. Rob, you've really given us a, a great lay of the land here uh, in a relatively brief amount of time uh, to, the, to the value-based care landscape. I want to finish with one final question, and I want to sort of uh, center our lens of focus on the hospital. How can the role of a hospital-based physician drive the most value for a hospital or health system? That's a great question. It's the world we live in and the life we lead here. Um, we have to meet the health system where they are on the continuum from volume to value. And, you know, each health system's in a little different place. On one end, the extraordinarily advanced health system that's already taking risk, we need to just plug in and, you know, think about the solutions that we have and, and don't fix what's not broken um, and help that health system achieve their goals and we all win in that scenario. On the other end, there's health systems that are just still in the, in the FIFA service world and say there's gold in those hills of FIFA service. And in those situations, we can help them by attracting more patients by delivering better outcomes, whether it's the risk-bearing medical group that decides where to repatriate their patients. We want to be that hospital practice of choice for that group. And so that's kind of, you know, meeting the health system where they are and, um, and then, and then going from there. So that's kind of how we think about it. Well, I appreciate it. I think that's a great place for, for, for us to close out. Rob, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it really was a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Absolutely. I uh, also want to thank our podcast sponsor, Sound Physicians. You can tune into more podcasts from Becker's Healthcare by visiting our podcast page at beckershospitalreview.com.